Everyone that directly touched Steve had a personal responsibility to make things great. And passionate detachment is the way that I ended up sort of understanding that, which was be utterly passionate, utterly into something, uh, but be ready to, for it to be dead by tomorrow morning and start again. And you did that over and over and over again and, and, and a thousand no's for every yes. And the only things that come out are great. That's James Vincent. He's helped develop brands for some of the biggest companies in the world. And that Steve he's talking about is Steve Jobs, who we met with every week for 11 years, coming up with some of the iconic campaigns for Apple products. To launch the very first iPhone, James started Media Arts Lab, Apple's exclusive brand agency, along with Lee Clow and other co-founders, and he ran it for over eight years. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. I'm a founder myself, so I like to dig around to learn how other founders really got to where they are today. Now, for someone who had a big part to play in constructing Apple's narrative, James Vincent is a relatively unknown figure, maybe because he hasn't ever really put himself in the spotlight. He can be pretty self-deprecating about his career, but he's helped some absolute icons. As well as Steve Jobs, he's worked with Brian Chesky at Airbnb, and in his most recent company, Founder, He's working with the next generation of unicorns. To find out how he ended up in the inner circle of those global superstars, I wanted to go all the way back to his childhood in Sheffield in the 70s and 80s. I think, I think Arctic Monkeys, uh, particularly the first two albums, because I, I don't sort of rate the other ones after that, but the first two albums and the lyrics from that literally was my life. You know, it's different up there, that sort of council estate stuff. that, I, and And so... It was a challenging way. It was a full Monty. You know, it was the early 80s. It wasn't just a steel strike. It was a minor strike, a steel strike at, and when I was 16. So that was the life I was brought up. Um, yeah, my, my dad's a... Uh, he was the head of the Methodist church. He was a theologian. And he really believed... This is the 60s. Really believed in sort of living uh, amongst the poor, if you like. And so that's why we were in Manchester and Sheffield. And he's done terrific work, um, wrote a book called Radical Theology and, and has written a bunch of books. Um, and so we were there and I was sent to one of the top 50 most failing schools uh, in Britain, apparently. Uh, only in retrospect did I discover that. Um, and thankfully, my sister pulled me out at sixth form and said, you need to go across town and get two buses to the smart part of town where the good schools are. And I discovered economics and suddenly I was off to the London School of Economics and my life changed. And I was like, oh, why was I failing so much over there? And I was just completely a fish out of water and, and, and not. Yeah, it was, it was a challenging uh, upbringing. Full, I mean, full of love, but also full of challenge because I was just surrounded by the Arctic Monkeys environment, which if you know, if you know those lyrics, you, you know, um, yeah, all of that, all of that stuff. I mean, I think the story of my life is a series of challenges that actually pushed me further. And I, I, I might argue that, you know, being a sort of sad 15-year-old, but then suddenly a rediscovered 16, 17-year-old, you know, I was in a band, I was a drummer in a band that wasn't very good at drumming, but, you know, sort of looked good in new romantics outfits. So I had silly hair and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and and I, who knew that that was ever going to be useful, except cut forward to working with Steve Jobs at the launch of the iTunes and iPod. And Steve's like, well, no one in Cupertino knows much about music. James, I think you know something about it. Like, so I ended up being the guy choosing the music for the Silhouettes ads, along with a, two or three other music supervisors, because I could explain music. And I'd been a DJ at college at LSE and put on events and stuff like that. So, you know, all of those traces of where you come from, you are, right? You are the accumulation of all the things that you've done. And so it wasn't easy. I don't want to go back there. But I did become perhaps the pugnacious person that it was required to, to work with Steve for 11 years through some of those and, and starting off in Sheffield with, with a challenging educational situation is perhaps the first chapter. Did you inherently want greatness for yourself? Was there like a thing within you, the, like some motivation or some drive that you can recall from those days that was like, I want something better. Your sister says, there's this better school down the street. Okay, I'm going to go do it and I'm going to study economics. Um, I certainly wouldn't have chosen economics. I probably wouldn't have chosen the better school, frankly. Yeah, no, well, it was hopefully one of the better schools. But um, 
Yeah, no, I, I think I did. I mean, my dad was sort of famous without being famous. So he was asked to join the House of Lords and he didn't and he turned it down because he didn't believe in that stuff. And we were going to go. He got professor of theology in Hawaii University. No, no, I don't want to do that. And, you know, and, and uh, was the was the head of the Methodist Church for a period of time. I, I saw where he could have taken all of that. And yet his own, you know, ideology didn't. And so um, I, I think I grew up wanting to be a rock star. And then when I studied economics, I went to LSE. I started working at the House of Parliament once, one day a week and worked for the anti-apartheid movement and wrote some of the things that tried to release Nelson Mandela, which really dates me. So yeah, I went from being, I want to be a rock star. That sounds fun, right? Um, to, but that's not going to get me out of here to, oh, I want to be prime minister. Um, and then I, I think coming out of just wandering the halls and seeing how slowly politics works and how just, yeah, uh, yeah, like molasses. And also, you know, it's political, right? I mean, ooh, really? Politics, political? No. Um, and so I, in my head, I was like, well, all my friends are like designers and creatives and whatever. So what's the place that you go? And of course, back in the late 80s, I actually became, and it sounds even more prodigal son-like for me to say this, but I went, I was a graduate trainee at Saatchi and Saatchi, which had just got the freaking Tories back in, right? And I was a member of the Labour Party. So uh, who knows? I was definitely clutching that and saying, okay, commerce, that's where I'm going to go. You know, I want to lead somehow. I think I've got something to give. I don't know what it is yet. I know that I've had it frustrating, but I want to try and channel that anxiety, that, that, that just the, the limitations and say, that's going to create a, a stronger James. I'm actually going to bring the setbacks with me, make them be me, own them and say, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. And so, you know, I needed that, you know, years later when I was dealing with Steve every week. So. There's a really interesting thing, isn't there, where, um, you know, well, John Hegarty in obviously advertising talks about, you know, when they zig, you zag. And you see this a lot in parenting, right? So you see this a lot in families. Um, and obviously, once you're a parent, um, that can be a source of fear and frustration, too, where... You have this Methodist father, obviously very strong religious beliefs, very entrenched beliefs, it sounds like as well, right? Very um, unrelenting. You say he's been given these amazing opportunities and chooses to turn them down for his own belief system. Um, and potentially putting your um, own education and opportunity in jeopardy. I'm not suggesting consciously. Mm -hmm. I'm just suggesting yep. it's the outcome of those decisions. Right. And that's Zig. And you're zagging, right? You're yes. saying, okay, well, what is sort of the opposite to all of this? It is, um, you mentioned the word commerce, right? <laughs> it's using my skills. It's learning economics, basically the science of money. And it is going to work in Saatchi and Saatchi, which is essentially the art of selling uh, consumerism and, you know, turning ideas into more money. And it's so, so different to what your dad obviously <laughs> would have, I'm, I guess, um, hoped or imagined for mm -hmm. you and so my question is all of this stuff um shapes quite a remarkable career where you're in LA and you've helped build some of the biggest companies in the world Apple Airbnb etc etc and we will get onto it however they're born from struggle in Sheffield um zagging against the zig of the Methodist church father and all of this stuff and it creates James how do you think about that challenge and the amazing opportunity that's turned you into when reflecting on your own kids, who I presume have been brought up in privilege in LA, because you're a very successful man, and they're at the heart, the epicenter of consumerism mm -hmm. in the world, living, I presume, unless you're forcing them to have a bad time, a very comfortable lifestyle. Right. How do you reconcile that emotional and intellectual challenge? Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. I mean, uh, I think every parent that's gone through that journey asks themselves, you know, does it we, you don't want to bring them up as rich kids, right? So thankfully, I have a, a Marie, my wife is a wonderfully down to earth and just, you know, like, no, we're not doing that. And no, you can't do that. And, and yes, we do expect you to set the table. And we do expect, you know, she's Belgian, my wife. So there's sort of those European values. And then there's sort of my values of I'm not, you know, I'd like to think not a sort of the you know, traveling salesman type business person, but I'm from a more thoughtful background. My dad is a theologian and my mom was an English teacher. And 
It actually, my dad wasn't evangelical at all. He was very free thinking, radical theology. It was very free, very 60s and 70s, kind of like if Jesus was around today, he would be here amongst the poor, helping them, doing a soup kitchen, opening up a church in a shop. That's the stuff he did. But you're right. I think there is a little bit of prodigal son here, which is uh, I'm going to zag while they zigged. Um, okay, so you mentioned earlier a lot of your friends were doing, you know, creative things. So graphic designers, you know, they were free thinkers, and you went to work at um, Saatchi and Saatchi, right? Um, like, what what friends? As in, why why a whole bunch of friends? Is this from LSE? Is that what people at LSE study economics? My sister was an artist. It's is an artist and was three years ahead of me. And so, as I moved down to London, she lived there already. So, I like her friends became my friends. And so, that was the beginning of sort of falling into a creative crowd. And then at LSE, we put on an anti-apartheid movement with Jerry Dammers DJing and stuff like that. And so, there was just yeah, there was kind of a more creative crowd. It wasn't the management consultancy LSE. The nice thing about LSE is that you know. Mick Jagger went there and JFK went there and right and and so there's a bit of rock and roll there so it was a nice you know I was never going to go off and work at you know whatever uh you know a management consultant or an investment bank as maybe eight out of ten people were I think the form of economics that I believe in is behavioral economics and it was it's a Chicago school that actually invented kind of in the 90s and I was at LSE between 85 and 88 hadn't even been invented and what that is, is a human-based economic models where, you, where people behave and you have to understand how they behave. It's not all about the numbers and the models and the whatever. And so I think economics has come a long way, but I am not saying I would have invented it, but I was frustrated by how economics wasn't behaviorally built. And I think I'm, I think I'm an observer of behavior as an economist, but also as a storyteller and a brand builder and as a culture person. Uh, if you if you yeah if you have the sort of the eq to pull in or from all these sources every conversation you ever had every experience the culmination of all of those i think maybe helps you have some ability to understand what's going on in the world and maybe some way of articulating that for you know now we work with founders but like how should i tell that story today um, I think the sensibility and the sens- sensitivity to what's going on in culture is back to behavioral, right? So I, it was behavioral economics for a minute, but it was just behavioral, I think, is I'm a keen observer of and reader and, and uh, yeah, obsess about, uh, as do my partners here at Founder. And so this is all, you know, think about uh, behavioral economics. I think about stuff. I think the first one that I ever read in behavioral economics, it was free economics and then... Yep. You get kind of hooked thinking fast and slow. Uh, yeah, so Daniel Kahneman, Dan Ariely, yeah. all of these guys. Mm-hmm. So that could have been you in another life, really, an author in this space. But, you know, you moved into advertising, which is logical, right? It's logical. That's really, you know, that's basically the um, the art and science behind how to make these kinds of decisions. So give us a snapshot of your career up until Steve Jobs. How does it meander? Because that was, I guess he was the first big enigmatic founder you work with right so yeah. what's your journey up until meeting him so yeah so i i start as a graduate trainee at sachi and i'm there for a few years and then i go to actually shyat day in the uk um and and i'm i'm starting to become kind of the tech guy back in a time when tech was really weird and i don't know why i was the tech guy but i i they did dell computer and uh and then i worked on a few other and i start and so Actually, after Shiat Day, I went off at the age of 26 to become the managing director of like a tiny little tech agency in Islington. It was like three and a half people and a dog, right? And so I became the sort of tech person a little bit. Maybe I fell into it, but I could see that technology was growing and had always had an appreciation and was a follower of people like Steve at Apple and, and, and you know, the twists and turns. I mean, talk about being thrown out of your own company and then start again. And so, yeah, I go to New York. Uh, and, uh, that's after having run this little tech agency and we grew to like 12 or something, you know, and, but I was 27 and I'm like, okay, yeah, I can figure out how to deal with, cause you're always dealing with like people issues and finance issues and a million things that I, that I knew nothing about. And then I got an offer, uh, uh, I actually, there is a trigger moment that I'll share with you, which is rather intimate, but, um, I was 27 and 
basically life just smacked me in the face. And it was almost as big as when I was 16. Um, so I went to India for a few months in between jobs and I came back and I had very high sugar level and I was declared insulin dependent diabetic. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die like really soon. And back then, you know, now I have a sensor and my insulin and everything's, you know, but back then it was very rudimentary. There was very little technology and it was really hard to, to be managing coping and, and, um, you know, I, I don't, honestly, I don't really tell people this part. So well done, Dan, getting me to talk about that. Uh, but I think it was, it would be remiss of me not to mention that because I went from being in London to saying, oh my God, my days on this planet are, are numbered, right? I was obsessed with the fact that that was it, right? You know, and I, maybe I got five or 10 years. So I'm going to go to New York. So that's like the biggest, coolest, hottest, most challenging place I could possibly go to. And I'm going to, can kill it, right? So I spun a few yarns, got some, got a big job at J. Walter Thompson, who were giving out visas, you know, and they were like, oh, the British guy that understands tech. And J. Walter Thompson was literally mad men. I mean, and, and I mean those guys, you know, the guy with the silver hair. I mean, I literally came in and it was three o'clock and he was like, oh, we were having cocktails. And I'd just come from London where, you know, it's the kind of Hollywood of advertising, right? It was already very creative and thoughtful and great agencies like BBH and, and Saatchi was great at various points. And, um, and suddenly I was in like corporate America and in the middle of all that relationship. And James, why do you care about the work so much? And why are you arguing with the client? And why, why are you hanging out with the creatives all the time? And what are you like, what? And they're like, well, that's why you brought me in, right? And so they put me on some tech stuff. And so I did five years in New York and uh, yeah, achieved, I think enough to understand the US market was running a global accounts, like had got enough that, Someone noticed, and I got the phone call um, in just before uh, January 2000. And the phone call was literally, do you want to work with Steve Jobs? And of course, my answer was yes. And, and just, just for um, those of us who um, don't know who Steve Jobs is, no, I'm just joking. Um, for those of us that don't know the 2000 period of Steve Jobs, uh, you know, where was he in his, uh, you know, life cycle? I guess the very quick history for anyone that doesn't know the details, he was fired by Apple and then he started Pixar and Next Computing um, and, uh, you know, made a massive success of, of, of well, certainly Pixar, right? Um, and went back into Apple after they cocked the whole thing up for a few years. Right. But, you know, what periods are we talking about? What moment did you come in and work with Steve Jobs? So, so Steve came back in 90, end of 97. And uh, he picked, he sort of famously picked up the phone to Lee Clow, who was at Shire Day, and said, I'm back. We need some help. Because Lee had done 1984 with him, like, back in the day, right? And so he was like, we need help. Get Shire Day over here. And um, they flew up there, and then they came up with Think Different. And so the Think Different campaign was the, well, we're kind of almost bankrupt, but we know there's a bunch of people out there that absolutely love us. And so, you know, working on the basis that, and I believe this strongly, I'd rather have a thousand people that love me than a million people that like me, right? And I don't mean me personally, I mean as a Yeah, brand. the thousand true fans concept as well. You know, a great example of that is there are all these guys driving around with the sticker on the back of their car, the Apple sticker, right? I mean, what other brand had so many cars with the sticker on the back, right? Because it was a belief system. And uh, you fast forward to it's a kind of funny story, but um, when we, we were a few years later about to open the Apple stores, Steve was about to open the Apple stores, um, we were trying to figure out how we can bring those people in and what role they should play because they were the true advocates, back to your thing about a thousand people. And, 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 and I credit Lee Clow with this. Like he said, you know, when I was growing up, I, was a, I used to hang out in the surf shop because that's where the surfers were and that's. And he's like, we need that feeling in Apple. Like when you go into Apple, there should be somewhere where you could just ask because technology is just hard and it's, it's kind of rubbish. The, the idea came from Lee. It was like, what if it, in every store we had this bar and we called all of these people that love us geniuses and we put them behind there? And we called it the genius bar. So that all had happened maybe 18 months before I arrived, two years before I'd arrived. So that the, they'd set the bar, there was new interest. They had the iMac, they had the uh, iBook. Uh, the colored ones. Remember the see-through ones with the bright colors and those things. And um, and that was kind of it. Hey, 
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. As I arrived, Steve, from very early on, our conversations were about how do you turn a computer from being this big clunky thing to something that's in your pocket. And, and, and so iPod was just the beginning of that, right? It was like, well, let's take a case, let's take a use case of things that people love, music, sort that out, iPod. Like we need to create a behavior and we need to get people to love it. So Silhouettes campaign, right? So all of that famous music and U2 and Coldplay and the U2 iPod and just like culture. Apple became more and music was their way back in. So they went from being having the thousand people that love them to having the 10 million people that love them. Um, what was it like? I, 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 I'm listening. I'm marking your age around 30, 31. What was it like then meeting, you know, um, even then, I think, as a, you know, a, a cultural um, icon, certainly an entrepreneurial icon. Um, what was it like, meet, like your first meeting? Describe your first meeting with him. Was it in person? Do you remember what you were wearing? What was he wearing? How did that conversation go? Who are you with? Describe that to us. So Lee Clow, right? So the big guy with the white beard and that's done some of the finest work is uh, a lovely human being. And um, he said, you know, we got on rather well. And he said, look, you know, I've looked up to Steve for like 20 years on and off. And I'm looking for someone to like help me, you know, like, so maybe... So I'm going to like, you know, kind of took me under his wing, let's say. And, and um, so we walked in and, and he'd sent, an, I think, an intro. Oh, I'm going to bring James along. He's the new guy. He's going to help, you know, whatever. And Steve said, yeah, you know, well, let's see, you know, whatever. Right. He was definitely not opening the door. Um, but I remember we just walked in and uh, Lee just said, oh, this is James. And he's like, he just looked up and he said, you any good? And I was like, I don't know. I mean. Why don't you be the judge of that? But yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. But let's go. Well, let's, let's get at it, shall we, and see. So, you know, one of the things that I learned from Lee was uh, under-promise and over-deliver. Over and over, which is why I always say I'm not kind of a salesman. I just, I think even BBH says this, right? You create an environment when people want to buy rather than like, ooh. But it was, yeah, it was, it was being invited into that very close uh, proximity of uh, high-powered, small group of people making a lot of decisions. And uh, it was pretty intense for 11 years. We would do a meeting every Wednesday from one till three for 11 years with the odd gap and the odd week or two off here and there. Um, and, you know, and then keynotes and launches were like just triage. You work seven days a week, 18 hours a day. 
you know, whole agencies like don't even think about asking for time off between here and here, you know. And, you know, keynotes are often in September, so that's great summer. Uh, but you could take Thanksgiving off. Oh, good. Awesome. The cadence was very important. And at Apple as a company, it, if you talk with Johnny or Tony Fidel or, right, they'll all, like Steve had these very rigorous um, processes of iteration with his key reports. And they would be, I'll see you in three days. Uh, we'll meet twice a week. Or I'll see you on... And so mine was every, every week, but it is also every evening and every morning, right? So the number of times my wife would be like, it's six o'clock, the phone goes, yeah, uh, oh, James, it's Steve, you know? Oh, and he hadn't slept, you know, he'd like, I'd gone to bed at midnight thinking, let's solve it in the morning, I'm exhausted. And he'd stayed up and solved it. So he set the bar himself of, of a level of working that was way higher. And I think some of his, Genius was to pull everyone around him to achieve a level that they didn't even know they could achieve themselves by setting the bar so high that it was almost untouchable, but kind of just about got you right. And so, so yeah, that that six day cycle and that intensity was thankfully had Lee to help sort of onboard me with 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 Steve and sort of help introduce me and and and. Can you know actually endorse me when a couple of things you know went squiffy and just say no 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 keep going, but I felt like I could be a good listener whisperer translator. I could see a role for myself. I'm like well, introducing iPod and iTunes. I used to be a drummer and a DJ and put gigs on. I know music. I know people in music. I know people in London and Tokyo can be like 22 year old music supervisors. And you know, I remember we 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 got we found Wolf Mother and we found Jet, right? And uh they were Australian. And uh I remember we went to right, they were great, right? I mean I love both. Yeah. So amazing. Right. And we found them. And I remember this crazy conversation with Interscope. So uh they were like, so where do you find that music? That's crazy that like, you guys found that music. I'm like, in your catalogue in Australia. And they were like, oh Anyway, so the music industry around that time was really behind itself. I mean, um, a few days before a keynote, which was a big keynote, because Steve had to convince the industry it couldn't solve itself, right? So this is a moment where music was being not paid for, right? Napster, LimeWire, if you go back to 2001, no one's ever going to pay for music again. And Steve's like, no, I think they will. We've just got to create a really great, um, experience. We've got to make it super cool. We've got to make it worth, right? 99 cents for your favorite song. There's another line that we came up with. But the music industry was uh, not, I don't think, self-aware enough to realize that what they were doing was suing 13-year-olds. That was their strategy. Steve was trying to say, you know, it's got to be a dollar a song. And they were like, oh, no, 250. Or I don't even know whether I wasn't in those negotiations. But that's right. It wasn't going to work if you were going to charge a shit a lot of money, right? It was only going to work if it was super simple. And um, like a week before the keynote of, for the launch of uh, iPod and those keynotes, you know, iPod keynote, iPhone keynote, iPad keynote, if you haven't watched them, you've got to watch them. I mean, the lessons in there of like seminal storytelling are just like, you know, next level. And I'm not saying I wrote uh, a significant chunk. There are bits in there uh, that I was involved in. And one bit was uh, this quote here, which, uh, which, about three days, I'm sitting in an Ikea parking lot and my and we have very small children. One small, I can't remember. No, we didn't have any children. Anyway, whatever. So my wife and I are setting up home. She's like, I'm going to go into Ikea. And I'm like, you know, I just have to do one quick thing. I have to call Steve because I just had an idea. And it's like, okay, whatever. I'll see you in there. Right? Literally, I'm sitting in an Ikea parking lot. I can still remember. I feel the emotion of it. And a friend of mine had given, told me a Huntress Thompson quote about the music industry. And I, and I you know, whatever, I, I can't remember what device I was using. So I guess it's just a phone because back then we didn't have iPhones. And um, he's like, what is it, James? I'm like, I, I've got an idea. He's like, what? Okay. I got this quote about the music industry and I know the music industry is going to be sitting in the front row and I know you want to like make sure there's, that the jeopardy is high. Otherwise, they'll just say, oh, we'll just keep going. We'll be fine two years from now, you know. And, and he said, go on, and what is it? And this quote is fantastic, right? I just happened to been reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or something. Um, and it, it said, the music industry is a long plastic hallway 
where pimps and thieves run free and good men die like dogs. Dot, dot, dot. There's also a negative side. And Steve's like, that's awesome. Let's use that. So I think he, somewhere in the thing, I can't remember where at the beginning or somewhere, he threw that up, you know, as well as Rip Mix Burn and a bunch of other like challenges to the industry. It's like, guys, you need us to help solve this. And so, you know, if there, there was a reluctancy for that type of, to, for the industry to understand that it really needed and that a technology company could solve that for them with the hardware of iPod and the software of iTunes. And so we were just, we'd stay up late, uh, Steve and I talking about it. So yeah, we did the silhouettes ads and we introduced iTunes with little kids singing their favorite song. And then it said 99 cents for your favorite song. And you're like, would you not want to pay a dollar? Like, is that not reasonable? These kids, that little kid singing Eminem, you know, like, you know, your palms are sweaty, mom's spaghetti, or you're already, you know, one opportunity, do not miss your chance to go, right? And um, so, yeah, anyway, I, I, uh, I digress. Well, okay, so um, I think this is a really interesting point you're making, because I think sometimes when remembering the history of Apple and the key moments um, of why it's an important company and why um, it created, you know, cultural shifts, I think music is actually forgotten about a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, in the moment, it's so obvious that it was such a big thing. Related, all of my listeners must watch, and I think this is my favorite documentary on entrepreneurship, full stop, The Defiant Ones. Have you ever seen it? No, but I will. Oh, my God. It's so sensational. It's a four-part documentary with Dr. Dre and Johnny Iovine. Phenomenal. Anyway, and it, I was actually watching that documentary that really um, hit home for me at the time. I was like, wow, I actually really didn't think about the kind of cultural significance Apple had on the whole entire industry. And that actually it had to take someone like a Steve Jobs to change it. It had to take someone with that much gravitas to encourage enough, you know, label chiefs to change the way that they do things. It's the only way. It's, it, it, I think it's in itself is a case study of power and influence. 100%. I just don't think, you know, he walk into a room and ask for the unaskable. And he, you know, he had the chutzpah to do it. And, uh, but he needed a lot of support. The product had to be great. The campaigns had to be great. Like not really good, great. And great, you know, he had this obsession with the fact that greatness is built iteratively through constant provocation and challenge. Hence the meeting every single week for two hours. We'd bring 10 campaigns for three different topics. I had 35 creative teams at some, at some point in the, you know, if we cut forward to the creation of Media Arts Lab, which was for the iPhone launch in 2006, uh, we were told that the phone was officially coming and AT&T came in and all these people with suits came in and said, and Steve said, we don't know anything about the mobile category. So AT&T have got an exclusive contract for a, a bit, but they're going to teach us everything and we're going to make the entire industry better. And I think AT&T know that and we're going to bring technology in. You know, like visual voicemail, that was an Apple thing, that was right. And so there's like a million things like that, obviously apps and phones used to have all these buttons and, you know, all that stuff and the fake internet and all that stuff. So anyway, I, I recall that Steve got to the end of this uh, offsite, top 100, the top 100 people in Apple, right? And plus this guy from Sheffield. The last thing he said to everybody was, okay, this has been perhaps one of the biggest, you know, because we're about to launch what I think is going to go on to be the biggest product the world's ever seen, right? And whether he said that then or said it some other, but it certainly is the biggest product the world's ever seen. The, the iPhone changed absolutely everything. The last 15 years is totally different based on 2007 was when it was launched. But in 2006, he said to everyone in the top 100, I want you all to think about how your jobs need to change because whatever you're doing now, you need to 10x within a year. Right. Because we're going to go from this to this. Right. Like it's going to be massive and we need to radically revolutionize this category. And once we do, then that supercomputer that used to be a room that then became a, under your desk, that then became on top of the thing is going to be in your hand. Walking out and he's and he's like, I, he's like, James, I'm like, what? He's like, come with me. I'm like, oh, no. Anyway, so because there were all those like, sort of those come with me moments and you're like, shit, how am I going to answer this question? So he closed the door da, 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 and he's like, so what are you going to do? And he just asked, like five minutes before, he said everybody needs to re spend the next, you know, few weeks and months thinking about what they need to do. And so I just immediately said, I said, well, there's no way I can launch that product in 17 countries in nine languages within two weeks, um, simultaneous global launch with an agency that has a studio that closes at 530. So we need to create a global agency for you. 
He's like, great. And he's like, so, and, and you're going to run it? I'm like, well, yeah, probably. He's like, right, yeah, you need to run it. And uh, good, all right, so what are you doing here then? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, go fucking open it, let's go. That night, I flew to Tokyo. I literally came out of there, called my assistant, said, put me on a flight to Tokyo, started calling the president of Asia and da, 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 tried to figure out. And then the London, I had to go on a European tour to tell every office holder of, of TBWA that they were losing their, their best brand um, and that I was taking it and consolidating it into one media arts hub in London. Let's, 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 let's talk about this then. I, I, I didn't know this story. Didn't know this part of the story. And it is so, so, so interesting. So you're telling me um, that part of this process of founding an agency was actually um, being given a, um, like, sort of a, a, a blanket opportunity. Just go do the thing that we need to do, which includes dismantling, I guess, all of the legal arrangements and financial arrangements and everything else with the current agencies that we have, paying whatever fines and penalties and fees there might be around that. Who the fuck cares? Just get it done because it's Apple and just get that shit done and found a new agency. What, taking the best people or how do you hire for something like that? That's my first question. And the second part of it is... um, you know, then how do you manage the the, the, the global comms of, of moving people into the right cadences to lead up to a big launch? And yeah, take us through the culture. What were you doing? How did you build this company? What I had to try and do in the creation of Media Arts Lab uh, with Lee, so still in partnership and, and, a, and a bunch of co-founders, the opportunity was I did have a blank slate and I did have almost like not limitless funds, but basically go get the best team, right? It's like Man City or something. It's like freaking Pep Grotto, like unlimited, like, but you better win everything, right? This work better be good every single week, right? Like Jesus. So that's why we had offices in different places because people would go to bed at midnight and then they'd pass it on to the Shanghai team or the Tokyo team that was like waking up or the London team. So London would be working on stuff and there'll be creative teams they weren't just localizing, but they're also creating. And so you've got this cultural infusion. I can point to a whole bunch of great work that came out of teams out of London, teams out of, and, and I think that really helped that we weren't just the California, you know, it was a really truly global entity. And I think the key trick was to mirror the cadence of Apple and the needs of them. Something that I think is super important with in, with sort of, innovators and I've gone on and worked with a bunch of founders that have created, you know, Airbnb and Snapchat and, you know, a bunch of others. So we'll, we'll get to those. But is this what I term passionate detachment, which is I'm unbelievably passionate about this idea all the way up to like, is it great? 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 Nah. <laughs> okay. Next. What else you got? He's like, uh, right? Because guess what? Nine out of 10 things are going to die. Thousand no's for every yes. That's how you get to great. You need to get used to saying no more often, James. Stop bringing me that shit work from the C team. In fact, fire the C team and bring me only A work. That was, you know, um, and I, I was going to tell you this story and maybe now's a good time. Um, every single week we would go up and see Steve and, um, you know, most meetings were, were good, pretty good. It'd be strategies and launch and media and, and ideas for launches of products. And lots of creative work, lots to choose from, all up in the board. The whole boardroom was like we had a crew that would go up the night before and roll out and print outs and just a machine and tons of work. And he knew what he likes, like this or this, and he'd scribble on it and this one, but not that one and this one. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. And so most meetings were good. Some were great, right? So the iPod, the, the silhouettes presentation went very well because we showed him the boring stuff. And then at the end of the meeting, at the end of the room was the silhouettes and he sort of made his way over there and we just stood still next to it. And he was like, you like this stuff, don't you? And I'm like, eh, you know, could do something. So, um, but anyway, one time we really didn't have a good meeting. Of course, over 11 years, sometimes you don't have a good meeting. And for whatever happened, all three things we brought up just didn't push anything forward at all, strategically, creatively, whatever. And we were leaving the, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. Anyway, so we're leaving and Steve's like, can you just hold back for a minute? Now, when Steve says, can you hold back for a minute? Again, I told you the other story of the, you know, top 100, hold back for a minute. You know, it's going to be something big. So he sits down and he says, James, 
I want to tell you a story. And it's about Henry Kissinger. And it was around the time of the Vietnam War. And, you know, the early 70s, late 60s. And uh, he commissioned a report about Vietnam from one of his senior analysts. And they wrote the report and did all the work they could. And they were super specialists for 25 years. And they wrote the report. Two days later, it came back and it said, is this the best you can do? And he said, oh, shit, maybe I forgot, like, China and da 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 We need to think about the historical connection between them and what's going to happen in Cambodia. Okay, let me send it again, you know, a week later. Two days later, it came back. Is this the best you can do? It's like, oh, shit, what have I forgotten? Well, maybe it's Russia and whatever the things were, right? And he, again, spends a few more days, makes sure it's super thorough, sends it back to him, comes back two, two days later. Is this the best you can do? And he's like, and he, in a moment of frustration, responds and says, yes, this is the best I can do. And Henry says, okay, great, I'll read it then. And I don't think Steve told, said anything else. That story was James, is this the best you can do? But he didn't like, I'm gonna fire you, you're a, right? Which is why I always think the portrayals of Steve are so off because they're just, right? He, and he, look, there were, he had some, you know, foibles, of course, because he's, you know, I'm sure that Pablo Picasso wasn't that e easy to sit next to. Neither was Leonardo da Vinci. If you change the world, you're probably right. You're impatient and you're somewhat right, difficult. But he also had a huge heart and he was a real human. And there were some. But he would spend the time to teach the people around him to be great. Right. And so, I mean, Johnny was great before Steve and super duper great after Steve in their collaboration. And I feel like there was a collaboration there and Steve invested time in like, oh, so yeah. I mean, basically he was saying, just the best you can do, James, that meeting, don't bring me shit. And so I said, you know, and, and about a couple, what I realized in that was going forward, every now and again, I'd cancel a mark on the night before. And so it's just, the word's not there yet. We need another week, Steve. And he's like, you sure? Da -da -da -da. I'm like, yeah, no, it's not there. And that was the lesson I took from it, which was like, don't, I've, I'm a busy guy. Like two hours, I give you two hours and you bring me that stuff, uh, not going not gonna to fly. So I, from that, said, I'm going to start, if we're not there the night before, it's not good enough. Actually, the, the morning of, because we night before we'd be like, that needs to get better. Everyone works all night, six o'clock in the morning. Is it there yet? We're like, Steve, I'm going to give you your two hours back. Sorry, it's not there. And that was better than, you know, <laughs> I don't know what story came after that story, uh, it, you know, if you continue to do badly. You build up this agency and it runs for X many years, right? It's still running, yep. you're saying. Very well. So what happened to you? Oh, um, Steve passed. And uh, that was, uh, yeah, it was a really gut punch. Um, I used to go... You know, in the last few weeks and months, I mean, two weeks before he died, I was sitting with him in his living room and, uh, you know, he was close and he held my hand and he said, you know, take care of the brand, James. I'm like, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know, because I knew that it was not going to be pretty for me without Steve being there. And a year before he'd said, maybe you should come work at Apple. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm better here, you know, da, 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 da. anyway, whatever. It, 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 it is what it is. And that, that was the moment where things really, really changed. And. Yeah, we just lost some of that alchemy. And I think, look, I think they've done some terrific work since, but I think there was a, you know, there were finding, finding a new cadence and a new center of gravity after Steve took a few years. And so there was an untidy couple of years there. Um, I'd never had someone that famous. I mean, I'd never known anyone that famous. So of course I'd never had anyone that famous die, but and then everyone comes out the woodwork and says, my friend, Steve Jobs, right? And I'm like, no, he hated you. You hated each other. I saw you scream, ripping each other, like, oh, oh, he was the... And, and it's, it's, it's this interesting question. And I get asked this question, like, was Steve Jobs a friend, right? And, and I'm careful how I answer it because on one criteria, which for me, a criteria of friendship is we can both laugh whenever we want, Right? Fuck it. But the power imbalance was so strong that it was like, no, no, we need to work. Da, 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 right. And I'd be like, oh, but da, da, da. And no, shut up, James. Like, get on with it. Okay. But on other levels, you know, I have a, I mean, my claim to fame, honestly, is that there's a photo of me holding uh, my newborn son as the first photo ever publicly emailed on the iPhone in the iPhone 
launch keynote. That's the way Steve celebrated you, right? He said, oh, so let me show you how that works, right? And he goes over and he goes, oh, and he puts his glasses on the top of his head as he always did. And he's like, oh, so it's coming in from the cloud. And oh, I got an email from James Vincent. Oh, he's a proud father. Let's have a look. Oh, oh, there's a photo. Ah, there he, ah, he's a proud father. And it's a picture of Leo, who's now 16 and six foot five, but he was a little baby then. And that for me was the, thank you, James. You, you know, had some, some impact uh, on, on all of this. And that's some of the ways that he would reward people around him. It's interesting because one of the things that um, I'm thinking about as you're talking is, you know, you come across like such a nice person in general. Your demeanor is very nice. And I'm so, I guess, you know, this isn't a compliment. Don't worry. My, my curiosity is leading me to understand, um, you know, how do you deal with ruthlessness? Because you work with Steve Jobs, you have to be ruthless for an idea. And I can totally imagine as a creative, you won't get too attached to an idea. There's a system in place. That ruthlessness to an idea, I, I'm sure you can handle behavioral economics after all. What is the data telling you? What's your gut telling you? Where's, where's this going to mix? What about with people? You know, fire that whole team, do this, do that. These people aren't the best or whatever. How do you personally manage this in your career as, as a leader? Have you found that easy? Has it got easier as it goes along? No, it's, uh, Dan, it's a great question. No wonder you have such a, uh, a fabulously successful podcast. I mean, the, the uh, you know, I came out of the Steve uh, experience as a, you know, benevolent dictator. You know, it wasn't pretty. I was, I had to become unbelievably hardcore because Steve was putting this incredible pressure on me and it didn't work without Steve. And then, so then I sort of, you know, had garden leave for a year or something as people and kind of got thrown out of media arts lab because I just couldn't, in fairness, like it was a new chapter and there were new people required. And so that's fine. But, you know, and I, I, I fired myself. I, I found my replacement and said, you know, I'm going to step away and just like, you know, 14 years is maybe long enough on this one, but let's make sure media arts lab survives. That will be, a more important legacy. And so I sort of stared at my navel, built an office at the end of the garden in, uh, you know, and built a swimming pool and sort of, I don't know, went to lunch. It's interesting because as I, you know, spoke to some smart people uh, about leadership styles and about, I started understanding that Media Arts Lab had become a pretty freaking tough place to, to work, you know? And the no's were a lot. And so much as I was trying to always soften it and bring the family together, and as it got to 600 people, we couldn't do that, right? There was a moment when we were 100 and we all got in the room together and I could say, close the door. Anybody breathes a fucking word of this, I will never do this again. But I'm going to tell you literally word for word what happened with Steve yesterday, okay? Super confidential, but I trust every single one of you. In fact, I'm looking at all of you right now. Ready? Go. He hated this and here's why. Hated this and here's why. But the lesson here is, I think he's looking for this. Do you know what I mean? We all go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Oh, no, no, no. And then the creatives will go, oh, yeah, wait, wait, wait. I think, why don't we try more like that? And I'm like, great. And that brutal honesty worked at a certain scale, right? Of 100 people where everyone's together and everyone knows each other. But the problem was is it got bigger and bigger and there were layers and layers. And I had a, you know, whatever, a managing director of each office and a creative director of each office. And then there were tiers of, you know, the most junior people were like four layers below me and whatever. Like I've never run a big company before, but... And then I have Steve breathing down my neck. Like I end up half an hour meetings going in and out being a yes, no person, which is just brutal, right? And I'm all the while got Steve in my head sort of. And so that was, I think on reflection, as I sat quietly for a year and, 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 and actually went to see a sort of therapist about sort of management style and all that kind of stuff and sort of realized that I, I needed to, and actually, it was a good friend of mine, Sean Nibbs. I'm going I'm to credit him with doing this. We had dinner and, and, and I was really agonizing because I couldn't find my place in the world, right? My place was to be the benevolent dictator in a company that I was no longer in charge of, having done all this big shit, but most of which was behind the scenes, right? Everyone's like, who's James Vincent? You can't have an article. Everything's confidential. Yeah, you were one of many. Every ad said Apple, you know, like Media Arts Lab. Okay, cool. Great. No attribute, you know, whatever. Anyway, and, and there were millions of people that contributed to it, so it was the right thing to do. Um, but the personal, the version of me that I'd learned from Steve was, was one that I, I clearly understood I needed to evolve, right? It was a very unique situation. 
But there were lessons that I wanted to keep too. And so it's been that process over the last 11 years of like, okay, how do I learn to be passionately attached and, and still not be scared of saying, no, I'm sorry, guys, I don't think this is good enough or it's not right or whatever. And, and, and founders I work with now, I think appreciate that. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That's, but I feel like everyone says that in the category, right? I'll say that in the middle of a meeting with a founder and they'll be like, what the fuck? who's this? Like, I mean, they don't do that because they know me before we start working, but they know that I've been through that. And, and so Founder, which is the company that we now, uh, it's FNDR, we couldn't afford the vowels, which is my silly gag, is, is three amazing partners, right? Because I realized through this, like, I can't do this on my own. In fact, I don't want to do this on my own. And so um, Stephen Butler, who's a great creative person that ran Mother in London for a long time. Then Nick Barham, who's a British planner with a brain the size of a planet and written two books about sneakers and, I don't know, like brand strategy at Netflix and uh, was at Nike, was in uh, Shanghai when, they, when Nike launched in Shanghai in 2005, like super. And so these two guys were like, we were working together. Actually, I was sort of helping out Shia Day on... Airbnb. So I met them and I knew I'd known Nick for 11 years before that because we'd been at a wedding and he was wearing a crazy outfit in the middle of Morocco. And I'd known Stephen for a little while. He just moved. And so he, friend of a friend, he came over for barbecue. So they were friends. And um, we, we went to, we had an Airbnb story. And then, but actually the quintessential person that means founder exists was Becca Jeffries, who as soon as I met, I was like, oh my God, we can build a company. Because these three old farts with like, you know, a bunch of y- yabby yabba, right? It's, but Becca's a builder. She's going to build a company. And, and I trust her. And she's, you know, she ran growth at 72 and Sunny, which, you know, that was quite a lot of growth in her period. So they went from like 40 people to 1500 or something. And, you know, she owned offices in Amsterdam and all over the place. And so she was just that quintessential, again, back to EQ and the alchemy you know, we, we talk about, I'm the alchemist, Stephen's the idealist, because he's a creative person. Um, Becca is the realist, and Nick is the structuralist. So now I'm lucky enough to have three partners that, and, and they're all, am I allowed to say motherfuckers on this podcast? Anyway, they're big guys and gals. And so now I go in with that, with the four of us. And when you start a partnership, you really can't be a benevolent dictator. I mean, just try that with Stephen. I mean, that's not going to go very far, right? So it was clear very quickly that I needed to evolve the style and that hopefully the style, uh, particularly within the company, is uh, is clear and firm, but also has, you know, a, a, a bedside manner that is, you know, is not sort of soul-destroying, which is a little bit of what happened a bit too much at Apple. Um, we hire, we've attracted incredibly smart and wonderfully diverse people from all over the world who just work with founders. We don't work with CMOs, we work with founders. It's not just any old founders, right? It was Snapchat was our first client. Evan used to drive by every Tuesday at six and just pop in for an hour or four or something. We had a room called the Snap Room that we would, and we spent time together and just helped him through. You know, he was a big fan of Steve and I think he saw in us uh, an ability to sort of ping pong around and make sense of the company and as a super smart fella and uh we got we sometimes i think my job as much as offering stuff is to pull the genius out of the founder you know it to me evan i mean snapchat is 260 million daily active users right they continue to grow i know my kids they got to snap as soon as they land where are my friends snap maps I can be me on there because it's just my friends. It's not that fucking, excuse me, it's not that horrible Facebook, meta, Instagram nonsense, right? With followers and whatever. It's real friends, right? And and that was the conversation we had over a year and a half with uh, Evan and helped him sort of actually accommodate it in a campaign called Real Friends um, that, that Snapchat made themselves. But it was as a result of the conversation. And sometimes, you know, we don't know the material value of the work we do, but I think we help founders, we help them pull the genius out of them and then they go off and implement it. And so we work with Roblox in 2018, we work with Farfetch. So yeah, it's out of those conversations with founders, I think bringing everything, the learning, 
trying to expunge the bad learning from the Steve experience and keeping the good learning, I think founders come because they want a bit of that good learning. And now we've worked with like almost 150 founders. I guess first question I have to ask on this one I'm listening is, so how does your economic model work as a business? Um, are there various? Because, you know, I thought, uh, okay, like advertising model, got it, whatever, but sort of sounds almost like coaches in a weird way, right? And so I'm, you know, do you mind sharing what is your business model? Are there a variety? And actually beyond that, I'm not obviously, obviously asking what you charge, but I'd like to know, you know, how it works as a company. Um and also, you know, you must have had amazing opportunities to invest in companies at certain stages. And have you decided to take that on? Have you passed? Do you have regrets? All of these. Go. Tell me. Wonderful. All right. Great question. Um, so we're sort of reassuringly expensive. Um, you know, it's the $50,000 lunch, but not. Um, both of those are sort of a joke. But we're expensive. We're more expensive than if you hired a design company to do blah, blah, blah. We do an eight-week sprint. It's super intense. You get all four founders in every meeting as long as the founder shows up. But if the founder's not available, we won't do the meeting. Which is, you know, some of that back to Steve, like, yes, no, no. I'm like, just so you're clear, so we're clear. If you can't do the meeting, just we'll do it another day. It's fine. We're called founder. We work with founders and we will help pull the genius out of you, but not if you're not there, you know? And, and, and it's not to say that the founders aren't, because they often are surrounded by unbelievably talented people and we're pulling the genius out of them too. But the founder has to be there because we kind of have a meeting and then conclude something and then they go back and say, no, I don't agree with that. It's like, wait a second. That was totally a waste of time. That's the agency model. You know, work your way up the chain, see the brand manager and then the marketing manager and then the thingy. And then, oh, they're all trying to anticipate what the CMO thinks, who's then trying to anticipate what the CEO thinks. And I don't know where good creative work comes out of that. You want to talk to the CEO, which is what I was used to doing every single week and every day. So the model is you talk to the source, you figure out what's in their heart and their head. You try to figure out sort of an overall narrative for the company, the existential narrative, right? So make clear why Snapchat's different to Facebook. Make clear why Farfetch is a you know, modern platform uh, for fashion. Make clear why Roblox is a, you know, is a, is a, you know, has a reality engine. It's like it's creating good digital citizens, even though there's little blocks coming along because so you can create things. And there's a whole generation of right people learning how to be Right, because there's plenty of metaverses or whatever that are not that, and Roblox maybe most of the time is in that positive space. And I like to think we sometimes have big and sometimes just small but important shifts in understanding as to the story they should be telling, and it comes out in a million different places. So sometimes, you know, Snapchat does a campaign called Real Friends. That's very obvious what that happened. Um, but it can also be like an internal where the founder just starts talking about the company differently. You know, we gave Jose Farfetch, you know, a, a, you're the global culture of fashion, but right now you're just basically the technology solution and you need to own it. So you need to start putting content out there. And, and this was, and, and, and again, you know, they, they have terrific people. So they jumped on it and were part of the co-creation. So I'm always trying to be careful not to like claim we transformed, you know, we're there to be, and I'm not the king in the king's hand. I'm not Henry VIII. I'm Lord Wolsey, although that's probably not. Oh, mate, you've just missed an opportunity for Sean Bean, your Sheffield <laughs> fellow man here. <laughs> the, the actual hand of the king from Sheffield, and you didn't even rise to it. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, it's too obvious yeah, for you. Too... All right, well, you can use it next <laughs> time. Okay, so... The point is, you know, you're you're in the room, these insights and instincts, you're agitating them out of people through a process. Yeah. So this is going to be maybe my penultimate question. Who knows? I could sit and talk to you for hours, but it'd be poor discipline. It'd be a nightmare for Ruth, um, who has to edit this at some point. So um, a great creative process mm -hmm. and building a great creative agency and fundamentally it's kind of the quintessential point of founder is just doing that for the founder with the founder um, is really nothing more than defining a very clear process and sticking to it and iterating with it, of course. But I'm guessing, you know, fundamentally, it must be very hard um, to know how to hire new people in beyond the four of you geniuses um, without understanding that there's a process, mm -hmm. you know, there's 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 a systematic way that we do things at Founder that's yeah. different to the way that other people do things. The eight-week program you yeah. talked about, for example. Yeah. Um, 
How long did it take you to come up with that? How do you come up with that? We sort of iterated it. To, you know, we were all, we'd all had pretty good experience and we iterated to make it better. Um, and it became eight weeks. It needed to be long enough to be enough time. We do a meeting and then a week off, a meeting and a week off. And we would promise that we'll do a session with you, then we'll do a session ourselves. You get us thinking about your challenge. And we have a bunch of super uh, smart, young strategists that, you know, are digging and coming up with that. But Stephen and Nick and Becca and I's combustion together is the things that they see. Um, and we're able to, you know, play our own roles without having to carry all the water, as it were. And so we've brought people in. Everybody's pushing everybody up, which is always the thing I think a great company does is like start doing the bottom part of your boss's job. And at some point it will get recognized and then they're doing the bottom part of your job and then you need to move up, right? So I'm moving up, right? I'm moving out of C. At some point I won't be CEO and I'm doing podcasts with you and podcasts for Fast Company, most innovative plug. Um, I don't know. There'll probably be a book at some point. I don't know. But, but you know, like help us be well-known and understood. And you don't need to be in absolutely every prep session because, I mean, why would I need to be with that? genius level of partnership that I have in my partners. You mentioned earlier, you know, with the way that your role was, you know, so many people involved with the Apple process and you're never going to be the Johnny Ive because you can't, there's only one Johnny Ive, there's only one Tony Fidel, and there's only so many of those people that can kind of take that, that mantle. Even at the time, I would argue, you know, Tony Fidel didn't really get a lot of recognition. It was all Johnny Ive. That's only more recently. I think people have recognized that was a team. Um, um and, and and so um you know there's there's a story of James Vincent who you know it's a fascinating a fascinating story through the years um but you know not someone who you know I mean like most people I interview to be totally honest with you who are like serious legitimate business people you know don't have a big social media platform yourself because you haven't spent your whole time trying to build one you've spent your time doing the work you love um you're quintessentially english in a lot of different ways um, you know, self-deprecating and all of the same kind of, you know, British nuances that um, make the under-promise and over-deliver charm of an Englishman working in America probably rub off so well on some of these enigmatic American characters. Um, but, you know, you're now moving into a position of um, of learning how to promote. You started a new podcast, you're hosting a podcast, you're doing more stuff um, to bring the stories of your interesting life out to the public and doing more to make people recognize actually where James Vincent's um, experience in some of the co-creation of big, important brands in the world actually sits. Um, is this the rest of your life? Such a good question. I mean, the, I don't know is probably the best, but, but I feel like there's a door opening just in the last few months. I mean, we're actually moving to Brooklyn with the family and the kids. And so it's another chapter in the family's story. And then there's the podcast and then there's sort of being invited and sort of becoming a little bit of a known entity, which should at some point mean I become a bit less of the CEO, but I can't let go too much. So they're always, you know, sometimes Stephen's like, uh, we didn't have enough of you on that project. Like, don't go too far away, you know? And so we're just playing with that now. I would imagine a few years from now, yes, someone else will be CEO and I'll be something, whatever, special advisor. Um, and that my time will be taken up less in the sort of running of the company, which it's less and less because we have such brilliant people, uh, Becca or Nikki, who's just, you know, is basically runs everything. Um, and so the business has its own momentum. And so I'm going out there now to, and, and, and to be honest with you, I think it's the cut and going all the way back to, the, you know, 16 year old kid in Sheffield that was a bit lost that, and his dad didn't make, you know, I think I do want to be in this position if I'm just, since this, you do create a very special bedside manner and alchemy and you get people to say things because I'm about to say, I think I do want to be in this place of being understood to have something to say about things, be worth listening to, have stories to tell, and that that will ultimately help the business of my partners and every, all the great people that work at Founder. Um, and that will become increasingly more and more what I do. Obviously, it's, you know, it's a challenging moment in venture. So um, it's, not, it's not the ideal time to be working with venture-based companies. But I think our reputation, uh, one of Fabry said to me one time, uh, who was the VC guy, he said, if we can float above the 1%, we can get above the turbulence because the 1% is still being funded. 
but it's right. And but you know, I think the summer will show itself to be the time when the VCs took time off. Then there'll be revaluations. Then there'll be there's too much dry powder waiting to be invested for this not to kick off again towards the end of the year. There's just tons, right? It's the returns have been so high. Everybody's put money into venture, and they have they have numbers they have to hit. They can't leave their money sitting not invested. So my sense is it will be a rush back in Q4. I think it might take a few weeks for that to happen. And at that time, by then, I want us to be the, you know, understood to be the, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, no, those guys. Yeah, you should work with that. Mm. They're pretty good. So, so you have your you have your um, your moment now. I mean, this is the thing, right? So you're saying that venture capital is having its moment. So these kind of companies that you work with is sort of having a bit of a reckoning too, which obviously, you know, our listenership is um, uh, very well versed to all of this stuff. So they'll, they'll know exactly what you're referring to. But the reality is, um, you know, it's also a great time to be out there and be a storyteller. Um, you know, moments like this where people are um, are questioning things, right? And looking for moments of hope and looking to the past to think about the future. Feels like a very relevant time for you to step out from the shadows and share these kind of stories because that's the stuff that inspires and can help kick on another opportunity for a new generation of founders as well. So feels to me like a lot of things in your career, you picked a moment or the moments picked you? I, I, it's not lost on me that there's this poster behind me that you probably can't see, but I think it's, I'm gonna tell you what it says. It says, your future serves you right. And it's actually a piece of art from Stephen, uh, my the creative partner here. Your future serves you right, as in you, you, know, you make your decisions. I think we've been talking about that, right? It's like, and you, you build your own and through, shitty stuff and good stuff, you know, and you learn from that and you step back and you say, okay, can I, you know, is there a better version of me? You know, it's really funny. I was, I was a guest on a podcast earlier today and they said, what's your favorite quote ever? And I was like, I don't know if it's my favorite ever. The one that stands out to me that I always remember so much is if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. And it means exactly the same thing as that poster. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Wonderful. James, hand to the king, but uh, absolute advertising, creative and founder legend. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been really fun, Dan. Thank you so much. Give us a final plug. Where can we find your podcast? Most innovative. It's Fast Companies, most innovative. So, you you know, wherever you listen to your podcasts, I think is how you say it. Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, we're on all of those. And I, it's just one-on-one conversations with people, big, you know, big and small. And um, yeah, we have some amazing uh, founders coming on in the next few weeks. And uh, so, yes, please. Uh, listen to it if you like it uh, what do we say yep. uh, give it a review you're the podcast guys so tell yep. what, give it give it a review tell a friend don't keep it to yourself share it on your stories thank you very much there you go well i appreciate the plug james vincent do try out his new podcast most innovative companies from fast company and while you're there please give us a review for secret leaders we love to know what you think Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon.